talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson. This weekend, the Around the Bay race makes its glorious return. If you're a runner, if you're not a runner, you're probably, as I say, looking, going, why do you do that? But, you know, 30K is 30K for those who love it. Um, two years ago, had to be canceled because of COVID. They remember they postponed it. Then they finally put it to the fall. Then they had to cancel it. Last year, it was a virtual race. You could do your run at home and then send in your times. This year, finally back on the road. And there is something, um, even if you're not a runner, there is something comforting about that for two reasons. One, it is one of this city's great events. And two, it seems to indicate that things are returning a little bit to normal. And if we're talking about returning things a little bit to normal, we should probably bring this next guy back on. I mean, normal times for a long time, he was a regular on this show. And then he decided that it was time to like pack it up and retire. And we have not heard anything from this man in months, but he is back for better or for worse. Ted Michaels returns to Hamilton today. Mr. Michaels, how are you? I, you know, when I heard the song, I thought it was directed toward me, not toward you, and I thought it was a subtle <laughs> shot at me. So, um, well, we can all that, take a shot. Yes. Um, uh, so, so you're I, running this weekend. Yeah, you're I, running this weekend. Yes, I am. I'm doing the That's five where, days always. Actually, it's, you know, it's interesting. You talk about returning to a, whatever sense of normalcy. Went down to the first Ontario Centre today. Uh, there were a lot of people there picking up their race kits uh, because they've kind of cut down the time that you can do that. But you know what, Scott? It was just nice seeing people and talking to people. Some were masked, some not. It's up to you know every, every person to decide what they want to do. But just the fact that we're all together again taking part in this event, um, uh, from a psychological standpoint, this is tremendous for all of us. Well, at least now we know what you've been doing uh, since you retired. You're at home watching General Hospital, drinking Insure, and jogging and getting ready for the Around the Bay race. Well, General Hospital, no. Uh, other shows, uh, drinking and sure, not so much. But I, as I get older, Scott, I like to think I'm getting a little wiser. So I'm not training as much as I did because my body's starting to, to break down. Like you get up and your knees kind of grind. And, uh, you know, when I was at the station for the last year, it was apparently it was everybody laughed when I used to get up from the computer and they hear my knees crack, literally. So I'm not doing as much as that um, for probably the first time ever uh, in the 5K that I've been doing it for, I think, 15 years. I really don't care about my time on Sunday. I'm just going to go out and I'm going to have a good time, just soak up the atmosphere, talk with as many people um, that want to talk with me. They may say, shut up, let me run. But just enjoying what we're doing. Everybody trains at a different pace, but when the race starts, we're all the same. We're all on that course, and we're all doing what we can. But I'm I'm going to really make sure that I soak it all in because this is the first time, as you say, in a couple of years. And boy, it's been long overdue. Have you uh, Have you ever done the 30k? I have not. I uh, decided um, several years ago when I turned 60, I was going to do 30 for 60, and then I sat down and the feeling went away. And everybody told me, "Well, you should." <laughs> I said, no, you know what? I've 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 heard enough stories and read your dispatches and stuff about heartbreak hill and uh i've trained on heartbreak hill that's about as far as i want to go so i was going to ask you that have you at least done like just take that out have you run heartbreak hill by itself yeah yeah i've 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 trained there i've run down there gone down there um 
You know, I think I, like you, as you say, you go up, there's a little bit of a, a rest, and then you go up the second part. And um, I'm telling you, by the time you get to that top part, you're breathing hard. So I've done it a couple of times for training, but but that's about it. So race day, kudos to everybody that takes that hill. I know they some sprint up it, some jog up it, some walk up it. Most everybody curses it. Yeah, and it is back this year. That's one of the, and I'm always, as I say, I, I am not a distance runner. Um, you know, I've done the 5K, but I'm not, I'm like you. I don't do the super long distances. And I'm always amazed when people are like, oh man, I really miss Heartbreak Hill. And to me, it's like, you know, it's like going to the dentist and being excited when the guy goes, I'm sorry, I've run out of freezing. You're going to have to do the root canal raw. Like it just, I've never understood the idea that I want more pain when I'm doing my race. This is like, it's, it's like a challenge when athletes say that they want to face the best. Well, this is something that proves to people what, what type of shape they're in or what they have to do or what they can't do for, for training. Um, I, I kind of understand where they're going, but to me, there's more enjoyable ways of going for a run than, you know, running uphill, red faced, gasping for air. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I know. Just uh, just keep twisting your ankle, and that's probably more fun. Just roll your ankle every step until you yes. can't walk. Yeah. Uh, no, I good good for the people who do it, as I say, absolutely, and good look, good for everybody. I think the as I said off the top, Ted, I think that even though there's you know the majority of people in the city don't run this race, we know that by the numbers, there are a lot of people who do, but the majority don't. Yep. Uh, I think the city misses it when this is not here. It's it's a, it is a signature event for this city. Well, I know that uh, when people uh, run, they go down the beach strip and they have what they call Tin Pan Alley. People on the beach strip take out their pots and pans and they bang it as people walk by or run by. And then in, in Burlington, uh, just before they get to the hill, I know down around Plains Road, it's the same thing. And then you have the uh, people standing uh, right outside the exit uh, at First Ontario Centre, like back of the uh, barriers, uh, yelling at people, encouraging, well, I shouldn't say yelling, yelling encouragement. Yelling encouragement, sure. You know? And then, of get course, off my lawn, you runner! Get off yeah, my pretty lawn! Much, pretty much. <laughs> and then, uh, as you know, uh, the what I call the uh, you know the wall of noise when you come down down the ramp at First Ontario Centre, you make that right hand turn to go out the Zamboni entrance, and then bang, you're hit with the lights and the sound, and they call your name on the PA, and you look, and uh, you know you you. <laughs> You know, it's funny, like, every time I've, I've crossed that line, I always think that I'm running gracefully like a gazelle. I look really painful and in major discomfort because I think I'm sprinting, and we're not going to talk about that race <laughs> where you barely beat me, but uh, um, yes. I, I always think that I look so, so graceful at the end. I don't. All I look for is that thing that says finish, and it's like, okay, thank God this is over. Well, and coming down the ramp into First Ontario Centre, if it's been a wet day, I got to tell you, no one looks graceful because all you want to do is not wipe out into the wall when you hit a slick spot near the bottom of the ramp. But uh, look, we we only have a couple of minutes, Ted, but just quickly, I mean, they had to keep the numbers down this year uh, because they they didn't know what the situation was going to be. So they didn't open it up to as many people as they have in the past. No. But do you do you think having that and having two years away, when they do open it up again, is it going to be an easy sell again to fill or out of sight, out of mind? Is there going to oh, be I some know. work to do to build this back up? It's going to be an easy sell because I was talking with some of the people for, from St. Joe's and, and the race down at First Ontario Centre today when they basically cut off all the uh, re- registration, whatever that was, because of COVID. They're still getting inundated with people. I want to sign up, and, and they're being told that they can't. The same 
same as a lot of the charity teams. There used to be 15 or 20 charity teams, as you know, that would come and get their picture taken. A lot of the charity teams are doing this stuff virtually this year because they're still a little concerned getting clearance from their head office, whatever company they are, to take part in this event. But I would suspect going forward next year, we're going to be back to whatever real normalcy was. Well, today it is four or five degrees outside. Tomorrow yep. it's supposed to be six or seven. Sunday, yep. minus one with 50 kilometer an hour winds. So I know you are a big fan of these spandex running shorts. You may want to double up and have two pairs of spandex, you know, Ted, that's just to actually, keep Actually, you know, as they say, it's a game time decision. I'm going to get up Sunday morning <laughs> and what am I going to wear? Because I know that for the 5K race, we go basically, we go down York Boulevard and it's a northwest wind, so it's going to be coming in right in our faces, right off the water. Then you make that turn and you go back down the hill and it'll be at our back which is good but again it's it's if you overdress that's not good if you underdress of course you just run fast because you want to get inside and get warmed up so game day decision i don't know what's going to happen i don't know how how my body's going to feel but i'm just going to enjoy the day you're listening to the hamilton today podcast from 900 chml we are learning now that vladimir putin um hardly ever unpredictable right well uh-huh. Uh, that is sarcasm. Uh, he is planning now to make unfriendly nations pay for Russian fossil fuels, Russian gas in rubles. Why? Well, let me bring in Eric Cam. He is a professor of macroeconomics, monetary economics, international monetary economics, implications of monetary growth at Ryerson University. He joins us now. Uh, thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. Listen, Scott, uh, anytime, but I have to tell you, since last we spoke, I went around to all of your former professors at Ryerson, and I got, listen, I got some good news and some bad news I want to share with the listeners. The good news is, apparently you made straight A's. The bad news is, you, the rest of your letters were crooked. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They, they didn't know me if they said I got straight A's. Let me put it that way. Uh, thank you so much for the time. I do appreciate this. And yes, a Ryerson grad along with a Ryerson prof here. So all, you know, we're all Ryerson today here on the show. Um, when, when Putin says that he now is going to demand rubles for payment, is this to bolster his economy, to bolster his currency, or is this to punish and humiliate the unfriendly nations? Yes, uh, it's exactly Both. what you just said. Um, again, a very apt description, because whether people realize it or not, whenever we purchase commodities in another country it's a two-step process people don't see it because they're not they don't see the machinations of it but whenever you purchase say an american good you first purchase the american currency and then you buy the american good it just happens that those two things happen simultaneously so what putin is doing is he's saying if you want our commodity which tends to be things like natural gas and fuel then you're going to have to first buy our ruble. We are no longer going to do business with you in your currency or the euro or in the American dollar. So believe it or not, as much as a broken clock is right twice a day, if what Putin wants to do is prop up his sagging ruble, this, believe it or not, is not a bad plan for the Russian economy. The problem is this has been tried before. This is obviously uh, a way to penalize countries, a way to kind of take a shot at people that haven't been favorable to Russia. In the short run, will it work? Will it prop up the ruble? To some extent. Um, in the long run, if those trading partners are able to find other people to get their natural resources, then it's, it's not going to be very successful. And the next question you're probably going to ask is, does this affect Canada? Not really. But would this affect a country like Turkey or Greece, who is very indebted 
to the point of about 70% of their imports come from Russia, well then yes, it's going to make a very big difference in those economies, Scott. You know, all these things that are going on with the Russian fossil fuel industry, and we've we've heard about it now for weeks and weeks and weeks, it leading up to and into the war. I'm wondering, is the world learning anything from this? I mean, I know that we have the debate about the green environment, event, environmental economy, and all the rest, but are we learning something about who we should be dealing with, or how, when we get out of this war and this is done, how we should be looking at? running the fossil fuel and the energy economy? Well, I mean, geez, I hope so. I mean, I hope there's always economic lessons to come out of any dramatic event, uh, be it the pandemic or be it what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine or anywhere else. And I think what's going on, especially in a country like Canada, is I think for too long, people have been arguing that we have a comparative advantage in our natural resources like oil and gas. So why are we so indebted to the rest of the world? And I think that that's now going to be a very spreading opinion as countries look around and go, you know what, before we get caught next time with our proverbial shorts down, having to rely on oligarchs for our natural resources, maybe we should become either a little bit more self-sufficient if we have comparative advantage in those goods, or if we don't, maybe we have to find better trading partners. So again, it's an excellent point. And I I just think that we came through 20 or 30 years where the sexy words in economics were international trade, trade negotiation. Um, And I think now we are shifting into a time, thanks also to the pandemic, where countries are looking inward and saying, maybe we shouldn't rely as much on other people for the things that our population uses most. I am glad that you mentioned the oligarchs uh, because I wanted to ask you about that briefly. We are seeing uh, some Russian oligarchs gently speaking out about this. And when I say gently, I mean gently. They are, you know, we might hear them say, you know, peace is important or something like that. They're not criticizing Putin directly, but they're kind of dancing around it. Does that make any difference? Is it important that they do this or is that simply symbolic and them just trying to not cut their legs out from under themselves? I think that there's some virtue. I mean, I'm not an expert in international relations, but I think the more people that shine a light on what's going on between Russia and the Ukraine, it's a good thing. I mean, let's be honest. Russia is a very powerful country. It is still a very powerful country. And you have to tread lightly when you have somebody who's as bombastic and willing to do anything as a Vladimir Putin. So our country's maybe not as loud as they should be. Well, sure. But you know what? If you or I ran a country, and God forbid, but if we did, and Hmm. we were so reliant upon Russia, well, you know what? You can't blame people for treading lightly because in Scottville or Ericville, if if our population couldn't survive without some Russian import, well, we wouldn't be too loud either because we couldn't afford to lose the commodity. So do I think it's good? Yes. Do I think they should be careful? Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't really know what comes of this when they do, if they do start to speak out, because I mean, a, a variety of reasons. But number one, I mean, the Russian people aren't getting an unfiltered media. So even if they said something, I'm not sure it's going to filter back home and suddenly we hear, oh, our leading businessmen are against Putin. I don't think that happens. 
But I wonder even from an international economic willingness to re-engage with some of these people down the road and once Putin is gone, if that ever happens, if saying something makes the bridges build a little better to, to reintroduce the rest of the world to Russia, if some of these people who are the leading business people in that country, for lack of a better word, if they say something, does it make it easier when this is done to rebuild those bridges? Well, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, we don't know who's going to be next in line, as they say in sports, you know, get the next man up. But you can rest assured that all of these countries in Europe or the other parts of the world, they want to kind of they're hoping for a softer, uh, gentler leader of Russia and then, you know, more engagement in terms of the linkages they can have between their countries. But I really think that this is going to have a two pronged effect. And so if we go backwards, yes, I think they're looking to make better relations, kinder relations, and and open up things um, on a basis where they don't have to do this again. But to our very first point we were talking about, you can rest assured that anybody who is who is importing goods from Russia is looking around the West, rest of the world trying to find new friends and new trading partners because, frankly, they would be stupid not to. They always have to have open linkages for goods and services. And so now I think it's just going to make everybody realize, well, there could be a time where we can't rely on Russia. And that's difficult for the world economy, but it's something you have to do if you're responsible for a nation. If you've been paying attention to the news, you'll know that NATO leaders, uh, member countries, have been gathering the past few days to try and figure out what to do with Russia, among other things. Uh, The answer, I'm not sure there was one concrete, conclusive answer to what to do, but one of the headlines coming out of these meetings, for us in Canada anyway, is a reminder that Canada has fallen behind on defense spending. Back in 2014, NATO members pledged to invest 2% of GDP into defense spending. We are apparently at about 1.39%. We spend something like $30 billion a year But one defense analyst says we're going to need to add another $16 billion a year to get to where we promised we would be. Benjamin Zyla is an associate professor at the School of International Development and Global Studies at the University of Ottawa, as well as a visiting scholar with the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. He joins us now. Uh, Thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Why have we not kept up? Well, I think there's a number of uh, reasons for that. Uh, first off, the, um, the, the benchmark that NATO allies have agreed to um, is a political benchmark, is a political commitment that allies have made. But it's, it's a very um, diverse set of indicators of indices that are being used to assess allied contributions to, um, uh, to the NATO alliance. Um, so it's not only how much a country spends on defense, but um, countries like Canada, countries like Germany and others have argued that other indices are also important, political um, commitments in terms of um, building um, headquarters, etc. Uh, so it's a, it's a very complex issue um, to, to gain access to and to analyze. So could there be an argument made that we have kept up or is it accepted that we've fallen behind? 
Well, I mean, in, in my first book, um, which is called Sharing the Burden, I looked at Canada's commitment uh, in the 1990s. Um, and of course, the debate about um, Canada being the laggard is an, is an old uh, debate. It's not new. It's not sort of just has just not arisen because of uh, the Ukraine crisis. Um, but certainly in the 1990s, um, Canada's commitment to NATO has been less military and more political in the sense that um, Canada supported um, the establishment of um, of growing NATO as a political institution. NATO has always been a military alliance, but the second arm of um, the NATO alliance after the Cold War, namely a political commitment to, to create a, um, an alliance of political, of shared sort of um, democracies that, that share certain values, principles, and norms, and so forth, was one of the commitments. Um, secondly, Canada um, has always been strong in sort of um, making commitments um, to expeditionary um, forces. So if you look at um, the Balkans um, in terms of um, Croatia, Kosovo, and so forth, um, Canada is actually not that much of a laggard um, in, in the NATO lines. Now, I just want to make, make sure that, um, of course, the the Ukraine invasion has changed um, the whole paradigm significantly because now, and what we've seen yesterday, um, there is a, a shift is taking place. Um, so in the, in the 1990s, it was about building an alliance, building a political alliance and providing stability um, to conflict affected uh, regions like the Balkans um, um, and, and other places. Um, and subsequently, what we see now, uh, we actually see a war of aggression, um, and therefore the result or the response that you that you saw yesterday from from NATO was actually a shift from what has been so far um, an act of um, deterrence, um, if you want to put it in in those terms. Um, so to focus on deterring Russia to escalate the the conflict towards a defense. So what we saw yesterday is the shift towards defending NATO allies and making strong commitments towards um, defending those allies, particularly allies in Eastern Europe. So if you think about um, Lithuania, um, Estonia, Poland, and so forth, um, you, you will see a permanent positioning of NATO troops in those countries. You will see um, actually, um, as of right now, almost a 24-7 um, airspace surveillance of uh, about 130 fighter jets coming from, um, from NATO allies. You see uh, right now 140 ships in action. Um, and you, so you see a massive um, defense arrangement by NATO. And to make clear, and uh, I think that this came, comes out of the um, NATO summit yesterday as well, um, is to signal Vladimir Putin that NATO allies are prepared to defend themselves um, should uh, Russia decide to escalate uh, the situation in Ukraine. And we only have, unfortunately, a few seconds left, but I just wonder if also there is an optics thing here, and I hate that word, but I'm going to use it anyway, because we just had the president of Ukraine speaking in parliament and our government saying he's a hero and all these things. And if we don't do something now that it's been pointed out again that we've fallen behind, and publicly anyway, in this NATO spending, it, it looks like we're doing a lot of talking, but not a lot of anything else. Whether that's true or not, it's the appearance. Well, I think people should understand that, um, like Germany has just announced a hundred billion dollars, um, a billion euros, I'm sorry, um, investment, uh, additional investments into its armed forces. The money will arrive throughout this year, um, but it's, it, not, it doesn't change anything sort of right now. It doesn't help Ukraine or our... Um, our sort of you know toolkit so to speak military toolkit at the moment um because 
you need to buy these things, like to buy fighter jets, to buy ships. Um, takes a lot of time to pl for planning, for designing, and then subsequently for building. So to think about that, uh, if we just take you know fifty billion dollars um, right now um, and um, sort of hope to buy you know, x amounts of ships or uh, planes, etc., it it won't work um, because, as I said, these things uh, will take a lot of time. What we mm. are doing, and people have to remember this, I think, um, if we're um, actively, for example, in invoking a no-fly zone over Ukraine, this will automatically mean that Canada will be part of a war against yes, Russia. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, and we, yeah, that's, that's, that's a whole, that's another discussion, but you're absolutely right, of course. I mean, that's, that's something we can't right now, I don't think, afford to do. I uh, wish we had more time. Benjamin Zyla, Associate Professor at University of Ottawa. Thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We know, well, we think we know. We know of what's happening in Ukraine and then all the refugees that are spilling into Poland. We know from hearing of stories that it is a growing humanitarian crisis in Poland. We know about the war in Ukraine. But these are sort of general, not very specific ideas. We don't really know. We can we get ideas from what we hear, but I want to bring in someone who is just back, literally has just touched back down in North America after being over through Ukraine and through Poland to see what is really happening over there. Uh, Brian J. Karam, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com and The Washington Diplomat, host of the Just Ask the Question podcast and author of the new book, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Uh, Brian, thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. Sure. Glad to help. So uh, before I ask about what is going on there, a little background, where where did you get to? How far into that war area did you get to see? Well, we were based out of uh, Lviv and spent uh, the last 10 days traveling all over the countryside as close as maybe 40 or 50 miles from uh, Kiev. Uh, we didn't make it into that city yet. We're going back in about another week, so we'll, that'll be our first stop. But um, we got to see plenty from um, the ground and what the Ukrainians are up against, and it was quite interesting. What are they up against? I mean, again, we hear all the stories, but there's so many reports and so many different things. What did you see? What are they up against? Well, I, I think what more than anything else, what we saw was uh, I, I say they're very salty people. They're very funny people, gritty, determined, and thanks to Putin, probably more united than ever. Uh, each day is tough for them. Each day their resolve strengthens. Um, and what we did see in interviewing a lot of evacuees and a lot of uh, displaced people is that there is no doubt that uh, what they're suffering through right now is, a, as was described by other world leaders, as, including our president, Joe Biden, um, this is a terroristic regime and these are war crimes, plain and simple. Uh, I, you know, it breaks your heart to have to interview a, a you know, you're talking to a three-year-old kid who has known nothing but warfare his whole life because in the Eastern parts of Ukraine, they've been at war with Russia for eight years and that, you know, he worries about airplanes dropping bombs on his home, hadn't had a meal in a few days. Um, and you're sitting there talking to him and he, he wants to play peekaboo with you. Uh, still just a, you know, even as a, the little child is just as resilient as ever and then you talk to the mothers. A lot of the people that we've talked to are 
uh, Ukrainian uh, women and children who have fled while the men have stayed behind. Some of the women are returning. And although they know they face uh, a, a large uh, army, they're more determined than ever to make sure that, that Putin doesn't and he will never conquer that country. That's You can see that in the way they conduct themselves. You can see that in the way the uh, Russian um, army has conducted itself. This is a quagmire. It is, it, it is frighteningly uh, dangerous for the world. We sit in, you know, some have already called this World War III, and um, by proxy it is. There isn't anybody in the world who isn't over there, whether it's American arms, whether it's Israeli arms, whether it's volunteers, there's humanitarian relief efforts going on from around the globe that are in that country trying to make their way to places like Mariupol and and, uh, Kiev that have been besieged. And so far... uh, Putin has not been able to link his forces up. Mariupol is a very key crossroads, kind of like Bastogne was in World War II, mm. as far as a a, a, a a passageway through which the Germans had to conquer in order to continue their offensive, and that's what Mariupol is. Without Mariupol, they're not going to be able to link up their forces, and I think that's going to be spell disaster ultimately for Putin. This does not end well for Russia, no matter what happens the Russian people will suffer. The uh, their prestige in the world will lower. The ability to create an economy, a, a vibrant economy, will will dissipate, and Ukraine will rise in stature. Um, the big question remains: Who else goes down with Russia? And hopefully, it's not the whole world. Well, and you know what you you just you just cited a, a place and a story, and I think many people are familiar with it. Some won't be. Anyone who's watched Band of Brothers uh, knows what I'm talking about. When you invoke Bastogne, uh, even if Ukraine stands, boy, that's a terrifying thing to to use as a reference point. Probably very accurate. But anyone who knows anything about that and the Battle of the Bulge, I mean, that was it was a horrendous thing. They the, the Allies ended up holding it and winning but boy the cost of that and, and when you say that i wonder if that's what you're looking at that ukraine ultimately well, is going is, to hold yeah the, look the cost is cannot be determined at this point in time wholly but mariupol is is leveled i uh, i mean it's gone i interviewed a family that had evacuated from there a father uh the, the wife the the husband Um, a daughter who was eight, a son who was 11. They lived in the apartment complex across the street from a theater that was clearly marked uh, in Russian and seen from satellite photos that said said children. They watched it be destroyed. They watched their apartment complex be destroyed floor by floor, starting at the top and going down. There's nothing left but walls in some place. They spent five days in a communal bomb shelter and only left the father left at one point in time to help bury some bodies of people that were killed and they buried them in the front yard of the homes where they lived, So people would know who they were. They got out of there with their lives barely and hadn't eaten in three days. When I spoke to them, this is as horrific as war gets. The mayor of Kiev came on. There was a press conference a few days ago in which the mayor of Kiev said, look, if you don't believe this affects you, you're wrong. This is the largest war since World War II, and it affects every, it affects everyone, and it does. And um, it's frightening because it was completely avoidable. 
it was merely one man's desire to reunite the Soviet Union in something that he can't do, and it's going to go down badly for them. So we got news uh, in the last little while that Canada has pledged to increase oil exports by 300,000 barrels a day in response to the shortened supply in Europe due to Russia and everything that's going on there. And when I heard that, uh, my first reaction was, huh, huh. I mean, it seems like an interesting thing for us to do. I want to bring in Dan McTague, president of the Canadians for Affordable Energy and a former Liberal MP. Uh, Dan joins us now. Dan, how are you today? Hey, you know, I'm doing well, and I saw that headline as well and had a bit of a chuckle and a bit of dismay. Well, so did we build some new infrastructure that I don't know about in the past week? Because I thought we couldn't get our oil and liquefied gas to the market. We can't, but we can optimize existing pipelines. But, you know, for a country that could produce uh, triple the amount of oil uh, but can't do so because we have pipeline blockages in this country, uh, and we've gone through this whole process of killing the Northern Gateway pipeline, 525,000 barrels a day. Uh, then we killed, uh, and let's say we, the federal government, killed the Energy East pipeline, 1.1 million barrels a day. Uh, you know, fooled around with the Trans Mountain uh, pipeline expansion, bent over backwards for every Tom, Dick, and Harry. Uh, that costs us seven, eight billion dollars, and then rising. That is still not built. Eight hundred and—that's about nine hundred thousand barrels a day. Then, of course, we uh, we rolled over and died when Biden and his predecessor, uh, Democrat predecessor uh, ba- um, Obama, killed the Keystone expansion pipeline. That's eight hundred and thirty thousand barrels. And of course, when you put all these together, you say, "Hey, that's three million barrels of oil that Canada could have been selling to the rest of the world." Instead. We have politicians, not just our own, but President Biden going around on bended knee to Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, willing to make a deal with the devil, with Iran. And now, of course, recognizing that we made a big mistake in putting all our eggs in one basket, as Europe did with natural gas and oil with Russia. So, okay, I'm trying to now decide if I interpret this or if you interpret this as a sign that maybe our government is softening softening its views a little bit on fossil fuels and saying, you know what, there is still a need for this and maybe we should be more involved. Um, I mean, I, I, I would love that to be the takeaway, but the reality is that these guys are uh, have a cult-like view that this has got to stay the way it is. We have to stay the course. Uh, you know, they don't really want to be seen as contributing one extra ounce of Canadian oil or natural gas to the rest of the world. Uh, the rest of the world is now saying, listen, green globalization doesn't work anymore. We can see that. I mean, the Chinese and the Russians have exploded that myth to, to smithereens. What lacks here in Canada is a fundamental understanding that the price of everything we're paying, Scott, not just gasoline, it would be simple as gasoline, but I had warned about this for two years on with you and on this station, that if we keep turning our back on our number one export, something the world desperately wants, we're going to wind up in a position where we can't afford to make ends meet. And I think, uh, you know, forget those of us who talk about gas prices. Look at the, look at the price of food. Look at the price of concrete, the, the price of construction. Yeah, this is out of control. And it isn't 4% like the, you know, the Bank of Canada stats can like to say, oh, 4% interest, a little higher, highest in 40 years. It's a lot worse. And your listeners, the funny part is ordinary people in the street know much better than what our politicians and their uh, advocates are suggesting. The situation is alarmingly and dangerously expensive. And we have eroded affordability in this country, primarily because 
we've said no to something the world really wants, a lot more Canadian energy. So it's a decision that Canadians have made via their politicians and directly, and other politicians are not willing to get back off on that. And I don't see anything changing. It, it may explain why the NDP uh, and the Liberals jumped in bed together, because they know full well that if they face another wrath of the public at a time which people are losing faith and hope and can't make ends meet, uh, 54%. People cannot make their payments right now. I mean, it's, it's a far more serious situation. I think if uh, they were to face the wrath of the public at this time, it's pretty clear that uh, both those parties would be, uh, would be uh, committed uh, certainly to reduce seats in the next uh, election. But Dan, here's the thing. So I listen, everyone understands costs increasing. We're all experiencing that. And so there will be people who will say the cost of the cost is worth it to me because I am green and I want to look after the environment. And if I have to pay more, I will pay more. Others will disagree. But I'm struck with this new decision to expand three by 300,000 barrels to help Europe. I'm, ex- I'm, I'm struck by the, I don't know what better word to use, but the clumsiness of this, that we are saying fossil fuels are bad for Canada. We have to get rid of them, but they're okay. And we're going to send them over to Europe for them to use more of. I don't understand how you, how you jibe those two arguments. If it's bad, it's bad. Why are we sending bad stuff to the world if we believe it's bad for us? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we've rushed this and I think we really have to now say what's worse. Uh, you know, uh, and, and every 10 year uh, threat that the world is going to come to an end and burn up, uh, as we've seen since the 1950s, the Club of Rome, I mean, all these things have come together saying things are going to get bad. And they're going to really bad. Maybe they will. But you know what? The evidence so far is that we're not under four feet of water. The world is not coming to an end. There is not an existential threat to our society beyond that. And regardless of the industry that has been created around this, I think we also have to recognize that for countries like Germany, who are at the front end of this stuff, Britain for the 30 years, are now back to burning coal. And so, you know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't compute. It, something is not connecting here. But we cannot allow a so-called climate crisis to give rise to a global security crisis. Because I think right now for most people, number one, security. Number two, the ability to make ends meet. And we'll get around to dealing with the climate. But by the way, I mean, this is a country that has done enormous good when it comes to, you know, reducing all pollution. It's not just the ones that they cherry pick, which is carbon or CO2. We have done extraordinary work in almost every front. And there's no country in the world that comes close to our, our, our uh, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of international work that we have done in terms of reducing our footprint. It's not perfect. But it's a hell of a lot better than what we're seeing in other jurisdictions around the world uh, who so far have us over a barrel. And I think that's kind of where we're going here. I don't want to go too far onto that, but Canada is a solution. The world wants more Canadian oil. And right now, the alternative is if we don't get the oil, then we have to either burn coal or we have to ask people like uh, you know, uh, Iran or Venezuela or Russia for more uh, fuel, whether we like it or not. Renewables are not there yet. What we want and what we're going to get. The aspirational versus the reality, I think, is right in front of us. And for a lot of people, it's time to, you know, the rubber's meeting the road. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. This Sunday night, the Academy Awards will be presented. Will you be watching? Well, if recent trends are any indication, uh, the answer is almost certainly no. Uh, 2014, there were 43.7 million people watching the Academy Awards. 43.7 million in 2014. Last year, 9.85 million. They've gone down every year but one. 20% 
was, I mean, 20%, 20%. It's, it's just been plummeting. Uh, Robert Thompson is a trustee and the professor. Uh, it's a professor of television, radio and film director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. He joins us now. Robert, thank you for the time today. Thank you. And, you know, just before the century turned, uh, the year Titanic won, 57 million. That uh-huh. was peak. Uh, and that wasn't that long ago. So how has Hollywood managed, and I don't know if it's even, I don't know if we blame Hollywood, but how has the thing that was must-see TV that everyone had to tune in and watch, how have they killed it so quickly, seemingly? It's it's not that they killed it. It's that uh, everything has changed. Uh, It isn't just award shows. Those ratings are way down. It's sitcoms and dramas and soap operas and everything else. Uh, back in, um, 1998, when Oscar was getting 57 million, there was no Hulu, there was no Netflix, no HBO max or Peacock and on and on, on, uh, you know, uh, oftentimes 40 million people watch the Oscars because there really weren't many other choices to watch, uh, of a Sunday evening. Now there are so many other choices. Uh, and I think that's uh, true with Virtually the ratings of everything besides football and especially the Super Bowls have gone down, and it would make sense that they would go down. What we should remember. I, I would, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no. I was going to say if if on Sunday night because you mentioned Sunday, night, if the Oscars lose in the ratings to Ninety Day Fiance, the Oscars should be ended immediately. <laughs> that would be right. the, that They're would be the barometer. It, that's the okay. That's interesting. You point that out though. They will not lose to Ninety Day Fiance, even though everybody's saying nobody's watching the Oscars anymore. Uh, uh, You know, it's completely collapsed. It's true that the ratings were half what they were uh, 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 last year, for that matter. But last year still got 10 million viewers. 10 million is uh, puts you in first place on virtually any week uh, 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 in television. Uh, And 10 million is not chopped liver. I think the the fact is going to be that all of these awards organizations, just like producers and news broadcasters and everybody else, is going to have to learn to live with the fact that those old days of 20 million, 30 million viewers are gone, except on a very rare occasion. And one has to live with the lowered expectations of 10 million. But again, you can make a lot of money with 10 million viewers. Leaving Robert, leaving aside what you just said, which I believe you are absolutely correct about just the, the, how the, diversified everything has become and how spread out everything is. I think that's a huge, huge point. Let me give you three other options for what would be number two on the list that might be causing the numbers to drop. Pick one which you think would be next on the list. One of them, the fact that many of the movies, unlike when you mentioned Titanic, everybody saw Titanic. Many of the movies people have just not seen. Uh, number two on the list, Hosts seems to be a giant problem now. We can't seem to find a good host. And this year, I don't even, I can't, I know who's hosting, but it's, it's, you know, certainly not top of the line star power. And number three, politics that these shows have just become too darn political. And a lot of people say, I just don't want to be lectured to by the glitterati, which would be the next big problem. Well, I think uh, all all three of those are a small part of the recipe. The biggest part uh, being that we already talked about. But um, what we already talked about is a variable. That's changed over the past several years. These other things, uh, not as much. Uh, Many of the movies we haven't seen, uh, that uh, was true a long time ago, maybe less true uh, a few decades ago. But especially since COVID, 
there are we've had the opportunity to see virtually all of these movies without even going to the theaters. So you might argue that this year and last year there was more chance that we would have seen the movies. Secondly, the hosts. It's true that uh, uh, they've been keep experimenting with different things with hosts. But again, I go back to the days when the Oscars were getting 20, 30 million people. You know, before we went into the superstar hosts like uh, uh, Billy Crystal and that kind of thing, uh, we were, you know, in 1970s, we had four hosts sometimes, five hosts uh, uh, sometimes. That hasn't changed that much since the days of high ratings. And politics... People have been taking the opportunity to have an open mic to talk about politics, uh, even to not show up for the Oscar for political reasons for a long time. So those things were all true in times when we were still getting 40 million people to watch these things. I want to read you one thing from this was from the Los Angeles magazine that is just out. And it's I want to read you a sentence. This is coming up apparently in 2024 and it's under the headline. Are the Oscars over? And here's a, here's a sentence. Starting in 2024, producers will be required to submit a summation of the race, gender, sexual orientation, and disability status of members of the movie's cast and crew. If a particular movie does not have enough people of color or disabled people or gays or lesbians working on the set, and what is enough will be determined by a naughty tangle of Byzantine formularies, then that movie will no longer be eligible for an Oscar. Uh, Robert, I think, look... Uh, the idea behind it may be honorable, but I think a lot of people also are going to look at this and go, I thought this was about honoring the best movies, not all the other stuff. Well, it's never been about honoring the best movies. It's been honoring uh, what a body of people from the industry on any given year have decided to vote for for the best movies. Hmm. So let's never get the idea that this is some objective. You know, we used to put uh, film into a Bunsen burner and if it burned <laughs> blue, it was good and red, it wasn't. This isn't science. This is uh, uh, this is how, uh, given whatever the industry itself, who votes for these things, happens to feel, and not even what they think is the best on any given year, what they want to vote for as the best on any given year. Um, I think people look at uh, uh, some of these rules, and I agree with you. I think th there is an attempt to encourage uh, diversity that has not been happening uh, uh, naturally, though we expect that it should have. Um, and some of these uh, 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 things sound uh, pretty complicated. But, you know, in the end, I'm not sure that's going to matter. People who are into watching award shows are going to watch them. And I think there are probably eight or nine million people out there who will choose those things no matter what choice they have. Uh, and the rest are going to find uh, are going to find other things. 90 Day but, Fiance you know, will have their, their spinoff. Yeah. Uh, but Robert, the, you know, the Oscars still have high brand value. We've. Uh, I wish we had a lot more time. Love chatting with you, Robert. Robert Thompson from the uh, Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. It's always a joy. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We want to talk to you about the economy a little bit. I want you to have your say on this one. And look, either any view is fine. You're allowed to hold an opinion, whatever opinion it is. We're not going to yell at you. Frank Stronach, who's a businessman, you can like Frank Stronach, you can not, you can agree with him, you can disagree with him. But one of the things he said in an op-ed the other day in the Financial Post was, he believes we are getting close to a debt crisis. That our $1.3 trillion federal debt is going up. 
that the government, when it has announced a connection, this this liberal NDP connection now, we're going to have national pharmacare, presumably, and national dental care and a bunch of other things. And we've heard that NATO wants us to spend another $16 billion a year on our military and interest rates are rising and on and on and on, that we are now in just the edge of potentially getting into a debt crisis. There's others who say, yeah, you know what, that's a lot of money that we've got, but to have a good society, you have to spend money and we can afford to take on debt. We can afford the payments and you know what, we need to pay for stuff and therefore I'm not so worried about where we are because it's more important to have these things to help people. What do you think? Are we facing the, are we on the edge of a debt crisis? Are you concerned that we're heading that way or are you saying, no, that is completely overblown Doing stuff that we need to do is way more important. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Those are the numbers. Jack is in first today. Jack, how are you? Hey, big buddy. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? Super duper. Hey, listen. Uh, so, um, we, do you remember the We Charity thing? The, the, the we yes, day? I do. Yep. Yes. So, Justin Trudeau... Trained a lot of young people how to be stupid, and this is a true story. Now, he doesn't think monetary policy is a matter. He doesn't. He thinks uh, budgets balance themselves. His finance minister is a journalist who wrote a book that George Soros liked. Like, are we so blind? Like, honest to God, if you're under 25 years old, you should be voting conservative all day long. If you hang out with me, I don't know how you vote, by the way. I'm telling you right now, when I grew up, I'm an uneducated person. I just had a $5 an hour job. I bought a house. I raised a family. And now you can be university educated and not be able to have the same life I did. Liberalism is killing this country. Period. End of sentence. So, Jack, I'll take that. Jack, we got to keep moving here, but I'll take that as a you do believe that we are... Your people need to hear this, and you need to, too, obviously. The most important thing in life is breathing. If you're breathing, food, clothing, and shelters are issues you have to work for. Well, we're going to move along. Uh, thank you for that, Jack. We, uh, we're, you know, we're always happy to listen to people. Let us go to Frank, who is waiting patiently. Frank, how are you? Hi, hi Scott. Uh, I read that article about Stronach, and it really hit me, too, and I thought that he's got it right on the on the nose there. But, you know... Um, I'll leave you with this. Uh, you, you've talked a lot about the way we're going in debt, and everything you say is da- is bang on. I just thought politicians would wake up. But again, you may re- remember this. This is sort of a proverb, and uh, in being a sports guy, that once upon a time there was a guy by the name of Don Meredith. He he was a uh, sidekick uh, on the Monday Night Football, and he he made this phrase at once that sort of stuck in my mind, and it sort of covers a lot of this. He said, "Remember," he says, "if if and buts or candy and nuts, we'd all have a merry Christmas." Frank, I appreciate the call. Thank you for that. Um, look, one of the things that uh, that Stronach said, and you may agree or you may disagree again, and I'm happy to hear from you, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. I don't mind if you agree or if you disagree. I really don't. One of the things that Stronach said, and this is funny because I've been arguing for this for a while, is he said, you know, it's about time. Maybe we should consider now the idea of dollar in, dollar out government spending on the operating side. Which means any government that wants to spend whatever amount of money, it cannot run an operating deficit. So if it wants to run a pharmacare program, national pharmacare program, that's okay. 
but you can't go into debt for this. You have to then take that to the people who are paying taxes and say, if you want this program, it may be a terrific program, but if you want this program, you, not your kids, not your grandkids, not their kids are going to pay for this. We do this in city politics now. City governments are not permitted to run an operating deficit. They can borrow money for capital expenses to build buildings and bridges and roads. They cannot go into debt to pay for salaries and things like that. So in other words, in a municipal government, if you want to add a program, that that cost immediately goes on to the taxpayer's levy. The taxpayers then are in a position to decide if it is a program that is good enough and important enough and valuable enough that they're actually willing to put their money behind it. And if they're not, they will vote you out. But it's not something where you can say, yes, it's Christmas time. I want all this stuff and I'm going to pass it on down the line. I think that Stronic is onto something on that point in particular. Well, how different would our spending in this country be what programs would we choose to spend money on? And I'm not arguing that we're going to spend on nothing. There are things, medicine for sure, education, absolutely. Keeping our roads, yes. There's a lot of things that we would still do and still be happily paying our taxes for. I don't think there's too many people who are totally opposed to the concept of paying taxes. There's a few, but I think most people are okay with the concept of paying taxes for things that they value. But what if we were to say, like city governments, to the federal government, you can put in programs, all the programs you want, but you have to take this to the people. And then what happens is the people will decide whether the programs that you've put in place are things that they're willing to pay for. And if they're not, they will vote you out. It would put, it would crystallize the decision-making so you can't just promise everybody everything at no cost. I fully support this idea and I'd be willing to pay taxes as I already am, I already pay taxes, and I think you would too. Yes, I'll pay education. I don't even have kids in the system anymore, but I understand. I'll pay my education tax. Medical, yes, of course. I'll pay whatever money goes into healthcare. We already pay thousands of dollars each. We don't have free healthcare in this country. Never confuse yourself. We pay for it. It's included healthcare. I'll pay for roads. I'll pay for this and that. But I love the idea even though it might end up costing us money, I love the idea that you have to go to the people now and we have to pay. It's like anything else you do. We don't have the option right now to go to a movie and say, you know what, put it on my grandkids tab. I'm not paying for it right now. Put it on my grandkids bill. We don't, we can't, we can't, we can't go to a restaurant and say, I'm having the the steak. Uh, You know what? I won't pay for this. Give that bill to my kids. We don't have that choice, but with government spending, that's exactly what we're doing. How differently would we value things and what things would we value differently if we had to pay for these things? I think it's a brilliant idea, quite honestly. Let's introduce something because we've got a fantastic guest. We do something on the Friday night show called The Brightest Conversation in Hamilton Radio. We have someone you know come in and we talk about all kinds of stuff. And who better to do that than the co-host, the co-anchor, the star, really. I mean, Bob Cowan is okay, but really the star of Morning Live on CHCH, Annette Hom. Annette, how are you tonight? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I am great. Would you agree with that? Bob is sort of okay, but you're really, you're the one who carries no, that no, show no, most no, of the no, time. No, 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 no. Casey's listening. He might be listening. Oh, yeah. No, Bob carries the show entirely. It's all Bob. (laughs) 
We no, share it is responsibility. Shared responsibility. Yes, you guys do a fantastic job at that one. And it's a, uh, for, for you to uh, still be up and still be aware and on your game at this time after being up at some crazy hour of the morning, we appreciate it. And, and hey, there's some good news, though. There's some really good news for you. You were telling me that you guys are getting like days away from moving into your new place. I mean, CHCH, not days the Days away, yes. Like how close? Um, we've been told it's April 11th will be our first show. Nice. Now you've the, the new building, by the way, for people who don't know, the old building was down right by Hamilton city hall back in there. The new building is up. If you drive up highway six towards Guelph and when you get to highway five, where the Tim Hortons is there and the Wendy's on the left, it's just in behind there. Uh, have you, you, you must've been in there. You, you've been your, your studio that you've been in temporarily is right near there. So you must have been in the new place a bunch of times. I've been in maybe three or four times. I was just in uh, earlier this week and, and it's, it's like, whoa, it's, it's getting so close that they're still finishing up the set. And, but uh, people have been in for the last several weeks uh, because we're, we're changing not only a new building, but it's all new systems. Uh, so there's lots of training going on and our intensive training starts uh, on Monday, actually. Now, do you have the top floor corner office? Is that the Annette Holm office? No, no, we are uh, we are all um, in little pods, which is kind of oh. cool. It's it's a neat, it's an open work environment. We we had this many many years ago uh, in our old old newsroom before it got renovated, and and so it's great for energy. Like people can talk and yell, and you can find out what's going on instead of everybody being in cubicles and little aisles. So there's there's little um, little sets of three desks that kind of all face each other, but we're all on the same floor. So who did you specifically request not be sitting near you because you just cannot stand them? <laughs> no, we we were told. So I think I'm in with Bob and with Tim. So there's three little. Areas. Oh, you're not getting any work done, and you're not getting any work done at all if you're next to because Bob we're Cowan. Too much fun. <laughs> Well, there will be conversations. Let us, let us, uh, th- th- there's going to be a lot of talking. I-, I hope you don't require quiet to get work done. Well, no, because that, that's what I love about working in a newsroom is that you hear everything that's going on. And, and it's, it's going to be so great to finally have people back at work again. Uh, isn't that, well, see, that's true and it's not true. I mean, look, I've, I, you have to be at work. I've loved being able to work from home. A lot of other people have too, but there's an awful lot of people who share that view that you have that, you know what, I need the energy. I want the socializing and, and I want that too, um, of being in a, in a combined, in a group space that, that being alone at home is, you know, it's fine for working in your pajamas and getting cheap coffee, but otherwise, yeah, it's good to be back with people. Mm-hmm. You, you feel that energy. And I miss, I really miss my coworkers. Well, yeah. I mean, look, we, I, I, we all do. I mean, I've got a few. I mean, look, I can't stand Steve Milton, uh, but I, and I'm kidding, of course. I love Steve Milton. I'm just joking. But uh, no, it, we, look, we all, we, we're all looking forward to be back and seeing people. There are, there are people, true story, there are people who work at The Spectator with me that I have never met. They've been mm-hmm. there for two years almost, and they're employees that I have never met. I talk to them. I see them on Zoom. We've never seen each other in person. It's amazing. Or crazy. I don't know what it is. It's one of those. I don't know. Amazing probably sounds like I'm saying it's a great thing. I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. It's just a very, <laughs> very strange situation. Now, here's the other thing, though, Annette. I got to say, I think you guys at CHCH missed a real opportunity here. I do. Because 
I thought that maybe what you should have done is had all the folks from HGTV come in to design the CHCH studio. Oh. Like they did with the Brady Bunch house. <laughs> oh, you know what, though? Wait till you see, if when you see pictures, we have, you know how they had that staircase that, that came down, right? Now, we don't have that horse statue from the Brady Bunch, but we do have, uh, <laughs> it, it kind of looks like that staircase, and it's it's right in the middle of the newsroom, and it goes up to the second floor. Uh, you're definitely going to have to do a Brady Bunch style pose then on the staircase. <laughs> All of you dressed in seventies garb in anybody's face because oh my well, nose. Yeah, as long as it's not your face, then uh, you know. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure Leslie Stewart could take a football to the face, and you know she's been around football a long time. She'll survive. She look great. <laughs> Yeah, that's well. It's uh, well. We look forward to it. It's a- April 11, probably, but yeah, we do look forward to it. I mean, look, you guys are um, uh, we're all in you know competitive media, but I mean, you guys are an important part of the city for sure, and it's and 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 do an important job in the city, and and we're we're looking forward to see what uh, what the new place looks like. Do you know if there's? I'm, I'm sure there are people who are wondering. Do you know if there's going to be tours done of it, or is it just going to be? Because I mean, it's weird with COVID and everything, but is that something that's planned? I don't know. I would suspect so because it is such a cool building. I, I can't imagine that we wouldn't want to show it off. Well, especially Annette's cubicle. Tim uh, Tim will be there 24 hours a day. They'll just keep feeding him coffee and chocolate bars and he'll just keep talking right through the night. <laughs> no, um, no. He's more of a chips. We got to have chips. Chips. Okay. There's Well, do chips keep you awake? They would put me to sleep if I just ate oh, chips all day. Chips. We love chips. So, Annette, we just, in the last uh, half hour or so, because this is how things work, this is how sometimes things are done, um, Friday afternoon, 5 o'clock document drops from government agencies. Um, yep. We just got one of these. The sunshine list for the year came out at 5 o'clock today, or 4.59.59, just to make sure that everybody from the government was gone from their offices so nobody could comment on this one. <laughs> and so the media had to stick around all night to try and sort through this. Look, we understand, I think everybody understands that $100,000 today is not what $100,000 was once upon a time. We get that. That said, Annette, I got to tell you, this this is Ontario public workers, Ontario government workers making more than $100,000 a year. The number for the last year is now more than 240,000 people. I'm sorry, that just seems like an awful lot of people making over a hundred grand working for the government. Yeah, what it's up almost twenty percent from twenty twenty. It's up th- over thirty eight thousand. Yeah, since twenty twenty. So over the course of the pandemic, when so many people in the private sector are struggling, they lose job hours, their business is su- struggling, they've lost their job, whatever else. 38,000 new government workers in the province went over $100,000. Now, do you I, think I, that look, increases because so many healthcare workers were working and, and first responders were working overtime? Could be. There are definitely going to be, there's definitely going to be some of that in there. Unquestionably, that's going to be the case. But let's say, so that's 30,000, 38,000 new people since 2020. Even if you wipe those off because of the pandemic, we're still talking about 220,000 people working for us, working in the public sector that are making over $100,000. It seems excessive to me. It just does. Yeah, but like you say, a hundred thousand isn't the same as what it used to be, and and a lot of those people, healthcare workers, especially frontline workers, I 
they deserve it. I, I look. I, I'm not going to argue with the with the idea of the healthcare workers, especially with what we've gone through, uh, deserving good pay. I don't. I, there, there is a term that has been commonly used for as long as I can remember, which is the public service, that you're a public servant. And leaving the healthcare workers even out of this, I, I'm not seeing a whole lot of servanthood when you're making 100000 because I can tell you that the average household income in this city, household income, is not $100,000. The average household income in this city is well below $100,000. And I, I'm just looking around. I... We are in, we were just talking about it, Annette, before we came on with you. We were just talking with people about, you know, is are we in a debt problem? Are we closing in on a debt crisis? Do we have a $1.3 trillion debt? And we've got, and we didn't even talk about Ontario and its debt and all this new spending that we're going to have to be doing. Someone has to pay for this. That's mm-hmm. That's the problem I have with this. Someone has to pay for all this. And it puts it on the back of the private sector. Because the public sector does not create anything. It, it works. It does stuff, but it doesn't create. It's not the private industry that creates the wealth in the, in the province or the country. I, I just look at this and think this is, this is governments being honestly too generous with too many people. Not all. Again, I'm not saying there's not a government worker that deserves to make this kind of money. But boy, 240,000 people just in Ontario. And that's not counting the federal workers. That seems like it just seems like a huge number, especially when you look at some of the like some are making way way more than one hundred thousand. Like uh, oh yeah, topping the list, the head of Ontario Power Generation, one point six million. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, The chief strategy officer for Ontario Power Generation, one point five two million. Two other executives making more than a million. Uh, head of the University Health Network in Toronto, 845,000. Uh, now, and look, there are, and unquestionably too, I, I believe, I am not someone who believes that nobody should make a good living. And it's not about, it's it, whether whether what we're talking about with public money is too much. I think to get good people into these jobs, you do have to pay. Is it this mm-hmm. much you have to pay? I don't know. But you can't say, well, you're going to be the head of Ontario Power and we're going to pay you $50,000 a year. That's nonsensical. That's nonsensical. But I just don't know that I could go around through the province and if you look at all the employees and say we could find two, almost a quarter million employees just in Ontario whose jobs are worth $100,000. I, I, I think I would have a hard time doing that. Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to and, take and, a close look at my hydro bill. <laughs> All those no charges, kidding, right? It's like wow. But all of our taxes, because we have to. Yeah. These are people who are working for the government. We have to pay. Well, we've got two choices. We were just talking about it. You either have to put this onto our debt and leave it for our kids, or you have to pay for it now, and we have to pay it in our taxes. But one way or another, we're not these people. It's not philanthropy. We're paying this one way or another. Mm-hmm. And if you're a government and you are handing out these salaries and you're saying. Um, you know, th- th- we're fine paying this. Well, maybe maybe what we need, honestly, is for some of our politicians to have some skin in the game then and say, fine, for every percentage that our operating costs go up because of increases, that's a percentage taken off of your pay. I wonder how, how much more vigilant our politicians would be about negotiating or signing off on pay increases if they were being docked for every increase, every percent increase that someone else was getting. Yeah, keeping those budgets. 
I do not know because right now, why, why would a politician fight too hard against salary increases? They don't want public strikes. They don't want public service strikes because people get mad at that. But so they eventually, anyway, it's, it's, you can go and look, if you've got all night, cause there's again, 240,000 Ontarians, you can look through the sunshine list and, and I mean, you can call in and say, Hey, you're just being jealous. It's not about jealous. It's not about being jealous. I just would defy anybody to tell me that there are a quarter million provincial government workers who should be getting a hundred thousand dollars. Some should. Anyway, we are joined this hour as we do on Fridays. We have something we like to do called the brightest conversation on Hamilton radio joined this hour by someone who is very capable of filling that mandate. Her name is Annette Holm. She is the co-host and co-anchor of Good uh, not Good Morning Hamilton. That's on here on 900 CHML. On Morning Live <laughs> on CHML. There are, Annette, I'm trying to just remember that this show is called Hamilton Today, and now I've got other shows. <laughs> uh, there are just too many darn shows to remember the names of. But anyway, she is of Morning Live on CHCH. Her name is Annette Holm. Thanks for doing this. <laughs> you're welcome. Thanks for, man, you're busy today. Like, how many well, jobs do you have today? 17. Are you, are you doing any spectator stuff today as well? I uh, did some spectator stuff, and I'm doing this, and I've got to go do my modeling after we're done here. And, right, um, yeah. right. So I did model once upon a time. True story, I did model. Now, I was quite young. I was about eight, and I modeled in the Simpsons Christmas wish book. I modeled Tonka toys. I did Tonka like, toys, yes. hear of that, because those catalogs are still out. I'd love to see this. Well, what did you wear? I... I I wore a little yellow Tonka toy construction helmet and I was sitting on this. All I remember about it, I remember two things about it. I got paid $12 for it, which was, a you know, when you're eight or nine or whatever it was, that was fine. That was good. I opened my first bank account with that. And they had me set up to look like it was on this sand structure, but it was really a sandpaper structure. So it hurt like the Dickens. If you moved your arm, you ground the skin off your elbow. <laughs> you know, I'm sliding off of that thing. No, but I, you know, no, that's, yeah, that's true. But no, I, I will, I will make sure I send you a photo when I can dig it up. I've got one in the house somewhere. It's, uh, I, it, it still exists. I that's was particularly awesome. I handsome back then. That. Yes. I had a lot of hair back then. Let me tell you, uh, those days were <laughs> maybe, long gone. Maybe the, uh, the little helmet or whatever took it off. You think? Yeah. So it, it may well have, it's, uh, uh, well, something did. Whatever, whatever it was, something horribly <laughs> happened. Um, so, I got a question for you, Annette. So, this this is a bizarre story. We only have a couple of minutes here, but um, a, a guy, and it doesn't even say in this story that is out. It doesn't say. It seems that it was in England, but it's unclear. A man who went into a coma and came out of that coma fully paralyzed. It's it, it, it has something to do with ALS. I'm not entirely sure. The story is a little unclear, but anyway, he is completely paralyzed, but they hooked this thing up to his brain. So it's a, it's a unbelievably amazing technological device that using brain power, he can move a mouse on a computer screen and spell things out so that he can communicate with people. I mean, the technology is, according to the story, is just remarkable. That's not why I mentioned it, although that's very cool. What I find amazing is it takes him about a minute to type three or four letters. All right. So it's not a, it's not a quick process. He's, he's been in this position for a while now. When the first thing that he typed out when he was able to hook up to this technology, what do you think he would have said? Your mom is sitting by your bedside. She hasn't been able to talk to you for a long time. What would you type out if you could do that? What do you think? What, did he just type out like hello? 
I want a beer. Or mom? <laughs> I want a beer. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, he must be committed to the beverage. I'm thinking, yeah, I he love heard. you, mom. I'm doing okay. Yeah, I, no, it's, well, I think he's English. So, you know, maybe that says it too. But um, I just, I found this story great that he's able to communicate now and kind of hilarious that, uh, that that would be the thing that he decided that he wanted more than anything else when he was first able to communicate. I want a beer. He's probably not alone either. He's probably not the only guy who would have typed that out if, if given that opportunity. Well, good for him. And that is amazing technology. Can you, can you imagine now that we're at the point where you can think and make, just by thinking you make the computer move? That's unbelievable. I'm sure it's not that far off. No, and I think you're probably right, which is both really incredible and also wildly disconcerting, the idea that somebody is going to want to put chips in your brain to allow you to think and communicate. And I'm not sure I, if I have, if I'm paralyzed and can't communicate, yes, I want that. If I am just you and me having a chat on the radio, I don't really want to just be thinking my thoughts and where our voices are popping up here. But think about it now, because think about even like, and a lot of it is through conversations that you have or things that you search or whatever. Um, But you know, like an ad will pop up on, on your on your phone or your computer and you're like, man, like, how does it know that I was just, you know, researching that or looking for that or talking about that? And can you imagine now if even thinking about it, some ad now pops into your head? No. We'll go, we'll go insane. Yeah. Well, that too, that too. Yeah. (laughs) Especially if somehow it's connected to a computer. You know, that, yes. that all of a sudden, you know, you've, you've been out somewhere and all of a sudden an ad pops up on the computer and your husband is like, Annette, um, can we have a chat here, please? Like, yeah, what, what are, are you thinking, thinking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that this is uh, heading down a good path for, for those who really need it. Yes. Or but, maybe it um, is. <laughs> well, there will be no secrets, apparently. Annette, you and I'm sure everyone else listening has probably seen these stories of what's been happening in the Caribbean over the week with Princess, uh, Prince William and um, Princess Kate, which is protest. There are, in Jamaica, there were letters signed by a number of leaders of that country demanding reparations for slavery and announcing that the, co- the country will be seeking to get rid of the monarchy. Um, protests as they've gone from place to place. One sign a little girl was holding up says, kings, queens, and princesses and princes belong in fairy tales, not in Jamaica. Uh, This is one of those things that it seems anyway, like it has the potential that if Jamaica does this, you can see other places perhaps doing this. Do do you think the monarchy has a chance to survive in its current form after Queen Elizabeth dies? Because I look at this and I think, I I don't know how it does. Yeah, especially especially after, um, what was it? Was it Barbados last year? They became, uh, they left the Commonwealth. Yes. And I I thought the way that that happened, uh, Prince Charles went, there was a ceremony, they signed off. um, They had, I think, I believe she's a president now. Yes. But no, that was all all of these other colonies. I, I think going there was a really bad move. Which is ironic because they were going there to try and strengthen the bonds, they said, of the monarchy. And it seems to have completely, as you say, completely blown up and gone the other direction. Mm-hmm. Because there's protests on almost every island that they're going to. And, and I think rightfully so, because how much does it cost 
these islands for the, those royal visits. Yeah, no, uh, look, th th there's that, and there's just the idea that it seems as if the idea of um, the reparations and apologies for slavery, and look, I, I don't think that anybody specifically believes that somehow Prince William is responsible for this, or Kate, but he is representative of that time and that yeah. family. And I, I, I just, when I look at these, you're right. I think after Barbados did this back in December, um, I, I, I just have to believe this is going to spread that there's going to be more and more places saying, why are we doing this? Why are we, why are we maintaining our connection to the monarchy? And many places, I believe, out of respect for the Queen, who, look, even if you're an anti-monarchist or a non-monarchist, I, I believe that it's almost impossible not to respect the way the Queen has lived and the job she's done mm -hmm. and the service and everything else. And I think it's really difficult to hate the Queen and want to insult the Queen. But once she's gone, whenever that happens, I could easily see this exploding into a thing all over the place. And 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 I wonder if... If she will not, I'm sure she is taking note of, of what's happening. And, and I wonder if more and more of these, of these islands um, will, will become independent. We'll leave, the, oh, I, not, yeah. not become, you know, they are independent now, but we'll leave the Commonwealth. I 100% I agree. And, and do you think, when you look at Prince Charles, who is next in line, is Prince Charles the guy with the, you know, the silver tongue and the wonderful reputation that is beloved by everybody who can move in and calm all the waters? I don't see that at all. Well, you know, but the last few times, the last few times I've seen him, I look and I think, yeah, he he is starting to look like a king like he's he's groomed for that role i know he's been waiting it for it for decades but it almost seems like okay all the past you can almost see all that complaints just going away and just the way he carries himself now he seems more sure um it could be you know and look princess diana is gone a long time now and that was uh, when i say this i don't mean it as a good she's gone i don't mean that at all she was a problem for him for a lot of years because she was much she more was glamorous <laughs> well it was it went both ways and when i say problem i don't mean like it's good that she's gone by any stretch or nothing like that but she was way more glamorous way more loved way more connected to the people popular. way seemed popular seemed like she was one of the people, whereas he seemed aloof and very, you know, as you say, groomed for this and not really in touch. M maybe you're right. Maybe he is more that now, but once Barbados did this and now you're seeing it in Jamaica, I don't see any reason to think that there's not going to be a lot of other places. And I don't know about Canada because our constitution would, uh, and charter, it requires the, the disentangling of us from the monarchy is complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, and I can't speak well, to... I think how, it is for any Commonwealth country. I don't know. I, I mean, Maybe it is. I don't know if Jamaica would be any less complicated than ours, but they're they're working on it. And Barbados did it, so I suppose it's doable. Would we and do I it even, here? I even wonder what will happen to with other islands that are not part of the Commonwealth, but are, you know, how, how some islands are like, oh, that's a Dutch island, or that's a French island. And, and, and I wonder, you know, will that colonialism stop? And will they separate and, and just become their, you know, their own identity? 
Yeah, no, that's an interesting one. Um, what's what's uh, I've drawn a blank here. Um, Saint Martin, which yeah, is half, half French Dutch, and half French. Dutch. And the interesting thing about Saint Martin, for example, because that's a perfect. That, I mean, it immediately comes to mind because of the two sides of the island. That that may be something that some people there feel very strongly they want to get rid of. On the other hand, that's a huge part of their tourist thing that brings people there. You can go to the French side, you can go to the Dutch side. Uh, do you lose something? Do any of these islands lose something if they're not in the Commonwealth? I, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I don't know so. what it would be. I don't think so. I would I would still go to St. Martin or St. Martin, whichever island you're yeah, on. There you go. A side of it. Um, but yeah, I would still go there. Uh, whether it had a French side or a Dutch side, still the same island. Yeah, and Jamaica would be the same. I don't know. As I say, I don't know what the argument is. And I, I'm, I'd love to hear someone. I mean, my email is available. Radley at 900chml.com. would love to hear from someone. What would be, what would Jamaica lose if they go through with this and they cut themselves clear of the queen and of the monarchy? I, I'm not sure what the what the big loss is. What's the sales pitch that the royal family would give to say we must stay involved with your island? I'm not. I, I at this point, Annette, I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. But you better come up with something because it looks like it's that's the way it's moving. You bet. If they want to remain relevant, I think they're going to have to come up with something. And, and clearly, a royal visit from the most are they are they the most popular royal couple right now? Maybe. I mean, I, I would say so. Harry and Meghan aren't considered royal couple anymore, so I don't think you can count them. It, it, clearly, a visit from the most popular then royal couple is not doing it. Doesn't sound like it. So I don't know what's next. I don't know what else you can do. Yeah, who else do you send? Right, and 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 wasn't this whole tour? I think it it it's part of it is to celebrate Queen Elizabeth's seventieth year on the throne. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's having that effect. It seems like, you know, and I, and I do think, you know, I do think that if the queen had gone now, you know, with her age and she's had health issues lately with COVID and things, understandable why she didn't. I think if the queen went, I'm not sure that we would have had these protests now for the same reason. I think even those who are anti-monarchy can at least, are, are at least respectful of what she's done. I think this and would have service, waited yeah, a little. Life of service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this would have waited. It would have still happened but it would have been the next time or after she was gone. And they're, they are being, by the way, they are still being respectful enough in Jamaica that the people who have signed this have said, we're not going to pursue this while the royals are on the island. But as soon as they're gone, we're going to put the wheels in motion to make this happen. We'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see. But I, I'm, I am not confident that the royal family in a decade from now, even Annette, is going to look the same way. And I don't mean the family itself, but it's, it's impact. I'm not sure it's going to look the same as it, does today at all you mean the firm exactly exactly the firm i think the firm, down, yes. there will be changes i think and some people will love that and some people will hate that but i think it's it seems like that's where things are heading for sure this is hardly a new discussion i was sent from today from a listener i was sent a new story from the spectator that they had somehow clipped from ni- from 2009 where this was being talked about and i'm sure it was talked about even before then i'm talking about area rating which Mm -hmm. I think may be the worst name for anything because I think it's the most boring name. And I think a lot of people, when they hear area rating, go, I don't even know what that means. So essentially, and so if you know what it means, 
forgive me. I'm not trying to be patronizing to you. It's just for the few who oh, don't. Isn't it like where you where you put the holes in your lawn? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, that's, that's aerating. Right. That's right. Yeah, that that's good. So they're talking about whether to put holes in everyone's lawn, and not everyone's <laughs> happy about this. And I just don't get why they're all upset. I mean, put the holes. No, aerating essentially, in short, is different wards in the city pay different levels of taxes for different services, and it's based upon the services that you get. Now, it started an amalgamation, and many of these things, as the services have become more universal, have gone away. So for fire services or uh, things like that, it's everyone basically pays the same. The one that remains outstanding is transit. For the reason that there are still parts of town that get good transit service and there are parts of town that have basically no transit service. But Annette, City Council is once again talking about this and debating whether we should get rid of area rating and have everybody pay the same for public transit, which would mean those who are in the old city, in the downtown and in the like Ward 8 would probably get a significant cut in their taxes. And those who are in Ancaster, Dundas, Stony Creek, Flamborough, Waterdown, they will be getting a significant increase in their taxes. And the argument is, if you don't get the service, should you be paying, or at least not the same service, should you be paying the same? What do you say about this? How do, you, how do we work through this argument? See, I kind of come at it from a different angle. Like I, I, I work... Or, or sorry, I live in an area where we do have fairly good bus service. But I come from a, a rural area where there was no transit service. And to me, any transit service is worth paying for. Okay, and so that is, uh, okay, let, let's go with that then. Okay, so if we say that if you're going to get some transit service, but if you live in Flamborough or Waterdown, well, Flamborough, let's say, and you get a bus that comes along every 45 minutes compared to someone who lives downtown who may be living now on the LRT route who will have LRT coming along every few minutes. Your, your, the ability for you to access this service is vastly different. And the likelihood that you would use this service is vastly different. Is it a chicken and egg thing, though? If that many more people wanted public transit? Would they not have uh, a system that maybe comes not every 45 minutes in Flamborough, but, but sooner than that? I, 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 I kind of agree with the everybody pays for the overall city. I, okay, so I will again go along and say I like the idea potentially of let's improve the transit service to those far-flung areas so that there is then a reason for them to pay for that. I think th there is merit in what you say there for sure. Here's the challenge with that. The way that the area rating, as I understand it, the way the area rating discussion is, is we want to raise the tax base on some people who right now don't pay for it so we can lower it on others. But essentially, if you do that, the total, the gross that you're going to bring in is going to be the same which means we're not raising more money to be able to put more buses on the lines. Mm -hmm. We would simply, if we're going to then put those extra buses in Flamborough in order to improve or other places, it means taking service away from the places that have really good service right now. Now you've got people angry in the suburbs because they're paying more and people angry in the old city because their service isn't as good. I don't know that that satisfies anybody. Do you think that would happen though, where they would take away service where it's needed? 
Well, how else do you do it unless you then raise taxes for everyone and, and put more money into public transit, which which is a possibility. They could do that, and everybody's amount goes up a little bit. I mean that that's that's the way you would do it, and maybe that's the maybe that's going to be the way they decide. But I just don't I don't but see nobody, how the problem is nobody's deciding. They've kicked it down to the next council now. They have. They have because for the same reason they've kicked it since at least 2009. Because nobody wants to be the one to bring it in. Yeah, what year was amalgamation? 2000 or 2001? I can't remember. Something in there. Around there. It was around there. We Someone can let, let us know what the exact, but we're talking over 20, over two decades now. And it, yes, it's been constantly kicked down the lane because nobody wants to deal with this because they know it's a giant hot potato. It's a giant hot potato, and if you, if you're the counselor who wants to put this through, and uh, see the funny part about this, even as I'm saying it though, Annette, why would they kick it down the road? I, I mean, I'm talking about that. I'm, I'm thinking this through as we're talking. If you're a counselor in ward, if you're Jason Farr, let's say in ward two, or you're Narendra Nan in ward three, or whomever, and why would you not want to have this done? And I know that these suburban councillors are going to fight against this, but as long as you fight against it, if you lose, I don't know that the people are going to hold it against you in your ward. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm sort of surprised this has, has always just been pushed along the way because those who win a, a tax saving for their people, their heroes, and those who fight against it, even if they lose and they say, but it was the unwinnable fight, well, I don't know that they're going to be held accountable. So I, I'm not sure why it's always been kicked down the road. Somebody has to be brave enough to step up and, and do, like, for the good of the greater city, right? Not, not little parcels of, okay, well, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be more here and it's going to be less here. Look at the city overall and the transit system overall. Yeah, and, and you know, as I say, I, I, I'm not a big believer in getting rid of it. I, I disagree with you on this one only because, again, if, if someone could make the case to me that doing this would improve transit around the city... I think I would be very open to listening to it. I just don't believe that will happen. I simply believe that you will end up with people in the suburbs paying a lot more and still not getting the service that they should be getting for the money they're paying. And, and again, I'm, I'm, I am entirely open to having someone say, no, that's not right, and here's why that's not right. But I've never had that explanation that I can buy yet. I don't believe that... If the people in Flamborough are paying the same as the people on Main Street, that there will ever come a day when service will be remotely equitable. Mm-hmm. I just and you don't. wonder too with with gas prices going up and and it just becoming unaffordable for people to drive. Will will that spur more people to public transit? Great point. I mean that is, and that is what a lot of people are saying. We have to have better transit because of that. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, out in the suburbs, is a farmer in Flamborough going to use public transit? They're still going to have to get around and use their pickup truck or their car or whatever else. Like I, I, I look at this and I think that maybe the problem that we're having with this discussion is it's just too broad still. Maybe, the, maybe instead of still going all the way across the city, if you were going to introduce this, it's got to be tiny increments that are where you can show that the improvements in the service is going to be, then we can introduce this and get rid of it. I, I just don't know how you're going to sell this in say Judy Partridge's ward or whatever, where there's so many people who would say, we're never going to see a bus. So why are we paying? 
it's a tough one. It's a really, it is a really tough one. And and with the point that I just made a moment ago about the ward, the, the counselors who fight for this and get a saving for their people, they're going to be hero. This may come down to, this may come down to a mayor thing where the mayor just pushes this as a, as a huge issue in a mayoral campaign and you win or you lose on that one. I don't know. Annette Hom with us from CHCHTV, and there is nobody in the city, except for maybe Annette's husband, who is as big a Disney fan anywhere. Is there, Annette, I don't think you've, have you ever met anyone who's as big a Disney fan as you? Um, yeah. You have? <laughs> I admit, the shine is coming off. Well, that's what I want to ask you about. That's yeah, what I want to ask you about. So. Yes, I. So look, you love Disney. You go. You go to Disney uh, with your husband. We've been with our family not that long ago. But it's We've not been just there Disney. Together, you and I. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, just so people understand, we didn't run off together and leave our spouses at home. It was a media thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was a media let's just, junket. <laughs> let's just make sure the rumors don't start. Um, but so. I want to use Disney as the jumping off point, but it's it's a broader thing because like there's been a ton of people go online. Th- there has been so much criticism in the last little while. Disney has a new president and yeah. there have been cost increases and everything has gone up in price. And uh, there are a lot of people who are like you, who are Disney diehard saying, all right, I'm tapping out. I'm waving the white flag. It has become so expensive that I just don't know if I can do it anymore. And even some of the new things, they have this new Star Wars hotel. It's a two-day hotel. You go, and it's not just a hotel. It's a whole immersive experience. $6,000 for a family of four to go for two days. And that's U.S. And you know what? Whether it's Disney, Annette, or whether it's going to a movie that's not Disney just in general, or going to a play, or has the entertainment world, because Disney is entertainment, has the entertainment world do you think kind of lost its way because prices for all these things have gone up so much that the average person is going to have a really hard time doing any of these things with any regularity? Well, I don't, I don't know. Have like movie prices gone up that much in the little while? I, for me, in it's, the last... it's, it's the Disney, it's the Disney gouging that really bothers me. I mean, movie prices, if you look back a decade or so, yeah, I mean, you, you, it's, it's, it's gone up a lot. And now, of course, they all have the ways, like, you can get the seats that move, or you can have the 3D or the IMAX. Like, there's always a million different ways to separate you from your money. Um, I, I just, I, I don't know. I look at this, at whether it's Disney or something else, and I think, I, I don't know that, that the world of entertainment is getting it. That the, that the rest of the world really wants entertainment right now, because we really need the break. But the gouging everybody like crazy, I don't know that they're not realizing or thinking that they are ruining their their potential pool of people. But people are paying it. Are they? I, I, know, I know at Disney they are uh, because they're, they're um, like they never release their um, attendance numbers. So it's always unofficial things. But the parks are packed. So Even maybe the art, maybe it's not increases maybe it's not for hotels and increases for for meals and increases for tickets. So maybe it's not the entertainment companies that are idiots. Maybe it's us. <laughs> maybe. Doesn't matter what you're going to charge us. We're going to go and we're going to spend. I mean, I, I I'm I'm not that person. There there is a point at which I tap out and yeah. I just say I'm not going to do it. But maybe what you're saying is maybe. There's enough people that aren't that that say I'll do it that 
it makes no sense for them not to. Now, I wonder how much of this is, is, you know, trying to recover from the last two years, but there's also huge pent-up demand, right? So people want to go out. They want to do things. They want to buy things. That I agree with wholeheartedly. And yet, you know, maybe it's the naive side of me that thinks because there is so much demand and because people have been hurting so much, I don't know if this is the time to absolutely stick a knife in them and disembowel them for every dime they have like I, I that that it just it seems so opportunistic and I don't know that when you talk about these entertainment companies that's what we want to think of them as they probably are they probably all are but I don't know if we want to think of them that way yeah although Disney prices started to go up before um before the pandemic. So I, I don't know, like, don't get me wrong. Like I still, I still cheer up when I go into the parks and, and I still love nostalgia, but we're just not, we're not spending as much money there because stuff is outrageous. Yeah. I, I, these things to me always, Annette, um, you might be able, you talk about the pent up demand and, and I don't want to just be, as I say, I don't just want to be picking on Disney. I think it's across the board at mm-hmm. so many, enter- so many entertainment venues or things that you may get away with it now, but I do believe like a lot of things that you, you probably scare off some of your future audience. I mean, how many, how many kids, honestly, how many kids who their families might have taken them to Disney world, for example, will never go now because mom and dad say, I just can't afford that. And so they haven't been. So that's not something then that they will take their kids to and on and on. Like I, I do think you run the risk in any entertainment thing because you are a luxury item mm-hmm. that if you make it so expensive, you kill your future opportunities. Although I have to admit, I was not a kid who ever went to Disney. So how did you get into it? Uh, Daniel. Okay. <laughs> so I, w- I went there. I was in my thirties the first time I went. But was he a Disney kid? Yes. Yes. He See, so someone was, someone in the family was, that's, that's, well, I don't know. I just, I, I looked at it and I thought, I wonder what Annette has to say. Cause I've just seen so many people online talking about how expensive it's got. And I, I, I mean, it was all. I can't imagine having to go there with, with a family. Like we're, our prices, uh, because we're, um, you know, our timeshare is there. So our price is kind of set. Uh, and, and we bought it like more than 20 years ago. So, you know, that's a little bit more affordable for us to stay there, but we're, you know, we're not eating meals out as much anymore there. And because it's, it's just, you know, they've changed policies on restaurants that you used to be able to go and and maybe just grab a drink or grab a dessert or something. Now there's a price fixed meal and, uh, and, and you have to pay like 200 bucks a person. Wow. All right. Well, I'm glad we went when we did. <laughs> I'm glad we went when we did because uh, the uh, the CHML Disney VIP ticket is uh, apparently expired or something. I don't know. We're not uh, we're not going. Well, they're on the not even dime. doing those trips so much anymore. A, a lot of the um, a lot of what they're doing is is for travel agents or it's for you know influencers. That's all changed You're, too. Surely, surely you are considered an influencer. You influence me. You got to count it. You can just tell them that and say, "Hey, I influence at least one person, <laughs> I so I want to go." <laughs> yes. Will Will Scott be buying a trip? Trip? No, but you've influenced no, him anyway. No, no, he will not. <laughs> 
Uh, listen, Annette, we uh, we always love when you come on the show. We appreciate when you do when you do this. Uh, thanks for the time today. You're very welcome. You can see Annette Monday to Friday from early in the morning until. Well, still pretty early in the morning yes. on CHCH Morning Live. Uh, she always does a fantastic job with Bob Cowan and even Tim. He's okay. Uh, well done. Thank you, Annette. Really appreciate this. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.